have to be forward thinking and you need to share what you've learned with others. I didn't want to have other people have to reinvent the wheel. You know, if they could just read a book and help it guide them so that they could be better lawyers and focus on the lawyering part. That's what I was hoping that I would help others. I think a lot of people are craving that community because they're trying to reinvent the wheel and they realize, wait, somebody else has already done this. Let's learn from them. So that's one of the places that I feel like I'm giving back. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is the founder of a Houston-based full-service immigration law firm. She's also board certified in immigration and nationality law and the author of the book, Build and Manage Your Successful Immigration Law Practice Without Losing Your Mind. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Ruby Powers. Ruby, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. First and foremost, I'd like to ask all of the guests to give us a little slice of life, a little gratitude for the day. I know it's still probably a little early in the morning, but what is your favorite thing that happened today so far? Getting a hug from my little kiddos before I went to work and just, you know, give them a little love before we started our day. That's the best. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Ruby, let's start from the beginning. Did you always want to be a lawyer? You know... I think that I knew I wanted to do something to help people. I didn't really know what it would look like. I had thoughts about being the Secretary of State. Madeleine Albright was a role model. I was thinking international law, human rights. It's really interesting because when I look back at my high school scholarship application essay stuff, it's sort of crazy because I pretty much am doing what I said I wanted to do, which was business, human rights, international law. I just didn't really know how to do what I wanted to do. And somehow it all worked out that I'm in the space where I can hit up all those interests of mine. How do you think that happened? I had a lot of different mentors. One of them was a judge in San Antonio, and she helped with this scholarship to go to D.C. for a week. It was back in high school, and that had such a huge impression on me. And I think between the mentorship I had from her and that experience in D.C. that had a huge impact and wanting to go into law. I had an aunt who was a lawyer, so I interned for her. She does a different area of law, but it still sort of taught me a little bit about what does a lawyer do. I was also in speech and debate um, in high school, so I think it was just a matter of narrowing in the focus within law. But having those mentors and those influences helped give me more of that focus. How did you come across these mentors? How did those relationships start? Well, I think I was applying for a lot of scholarships for college or something. I was in a lot of activities in high school. I was in what we called Interact, which is like a division of Rotary, which is a community service organization. And I was in student council. I was in a lot of leadership roles, RILA, which is part of Rotary, cross country. I did debates. I just was asking lots of questions and sort of reaching out for answers and guidance. I was very driven, inquisitive type of a person. <laughs> Where do you think that comes from? Um, <laughs> I think that it's innate, but I think I come from a line of really strong women, I think, on both sides of my family. And then just sort of this resourcefulness because my grandparents were dairy farmers. 
So the entrepreneurial spirit and hard work. And then the other side, they were American missionaries in Mexico. So entrepreneurial and very driven, and there wasn't really a path for what they were doing. So they forged away. But I think ultimately I wanted to help people. I just didn't know what was the best way to use my talents and resources and skills to do that. So did you know going into law school that you wanted to do immigration work or was that something that came later? Yeah, I was sort of a weirdo because I already knew that. Like everybody applies to law school and they say, I want to do something, but they don't really know if they want to do that or not. They just say that. And I get it. I get it because you have to sound confident when you apply. I get it. (laughs) But I had already worked at the International Student Office at UT in Austin during 2001, during 9-11. And I had gotten accustomed to the old INS, Immigration Nationality Services. And so I had already had exposure to immigration back in college. And I knew that I wanted to do immigration by law school. So that helped me because by the summers, I was already focusing on immigration every summer. That helped me get really quality internships as well, because just as I know as an employer, if they have that experience, then I'm willing to hire them more than the person who doesn't have the immigration experience. Absolutely. To have that experience. And then also 9-11 happens. But what was that like? Well, I learned a lot about immigration and INS for the, you know, the majority of that year. It was very peculiar. And I was exposed to F1 and J1 students, which was very narrow focus. That's only a piece of what I do now. But then 9-11, a lot of the impact that affected immigration happened within the like couple of years afterwards, which actually I also worked for the Committee on Homeland Security in D.C. in 2004. And so Department of Homeland Security was created, I think, mostly in reaction to 9-11 in March 2003. Then I worked for the Committee on Homeland Security in 2004. So I started seeing the changes that were happening afterwards, which was basically they created a CVIS program to track F1, J1, and one students. And I mean, there was a lot of other changes that happened, as we know. So do you feel like that experience is what really made you realize that this is what you wanted to do by the time you were in law school or were other things an influence as well? Well, my mom was born in Mexico to American missionaries, and her citizenship was in question for a lot of her life. And so a part of that is what influenced me. I also was an exchange student to Belgium in high school, a gap year between high school graduation and the University of Texas. All the international students that I'm still in touch with 20 plus years later had an impact on me as well. And then I later married a a Turkish immigrant. (laughs) So all of that combined, I think it was a way to, to do work Use my international relations, my intercultural awareness, my languages, human rights, business by having my own firm, and also help other business owners who want to invest in the United States. And then just my passion for helping people like my husband and my mom. So all of that combined is what made me focus on immigration law. Wow. That's fantastic. (laughs) I mean, what a well-rounded and also really personal connection to what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of interesting because you mentioned we we talked about the 9-11 and the Mm -hmm. UT International Office and Committee on Homeland Security. But I already had, I guess, inside me that I was interested in immigration in some respect. But then that sort of just fortified it. I'm curious if you could just share a little bit more about your mother's experience, because I'm really interested in that. My mom was born in 1957 in Mexico to American missionaries, American citizens. And in 1975, she renounced her American citizenship because we had a family ranch. We still do. 
And to own land at that time, you had to be a Mexican citizen. So she took one for the team, renounced her U.S. citizenship, and then they put the ranch in her name. This is what they thought was the best thing to do at this time. You know, obviously I wasn't around right. <laughs> to give them legal advice. Yeah. Was <laughs> I mean, it's Mexican law, too. And so then the irony is after she renounced her citizenship, she moves to America. She marries my American dad. She has three American kids and she lives pretty much the rest of her life in the U.S., right? And somewhere when I was in law school, I realized my mom was still applying for naturalization and she was having issues. And I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. So I talked to my law professor, immigration law professor, and he gave me some advice. And I did some research. I followed the advice and wrote to the State Department and got her citizenship back. In fact, she actually had been a citizen her whole life because there was a Supreme Court case that clarified the situation that was pretty much on point for her. So this happened while I was in law school, and I've actually written about it, and I've spoken about it at state bar conferences on complex citizenship matters. And so this also gives me more of an interest in citizenship because bottom line, there's people who are U.S. citizens who don't know it. Not everyone has a piece of paper that says they're a citizen. That's why I also love complex citizenship cases, because inspired by my mom's story, who her whole life, she was actually a citizen, but she was living in the U.S. thinking she was an immigrant and only got her U.S. passport, you know, a couple of years before she passed away. So basically, I was a detective. I figured it out while I was in law school, and I helped make a big impact on my mom's life. What an amazing thing that you did for your mother. It makes me realize, especially people that are U.S. citizens their whole life but don't realize it, the psychological and emotional impacts that these people are going through, feeling like maybe they don't belong, and being able to bring this awareness that, no, you've belonged this whole time, or this has always been your home, and what a beautiful thing to be able to bring to people. Yeah, I love these stories, but to be honest, there's only been about three or four times in my legal career that this has happened. What's more common, especially under the DACA that came out a decade ago, is that I'm having to tell people that they're not a citizen when they thought they were one because their parents told them or something. And that's really heartbreaking. But back to telling people they're a citizen when they don't have proof, I always say, you know, <laughs> let's cross our T's and dot our I's before we start celebrating because it's just, it just seems to be too good to be true when we do find those like diamonds in the rough. But you're right. Psychologically, it has a huge impact. My mom, I think she felt like she was less than. I think she even thought that there was this thought that she married my dad for immigration purposes. And there's always that like underlying subconscious thought, I think, having done this for so long, that people sometimes don't want to do the paperwork because they think that it's for another purpose. But she was married to him for like 30 plus years, 40 years. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. That wasn't the reason. Of course. Yeah. But I can see how people who feel like they don't have a status and then they marry for love. Right. And receive that status can always have maybe an insecurity that people will perceive their marriage has some other agenda to it. So thank you for sharing that. On the flip side, you said the majority of the time you're dealing with telling people that they're not citizens when they thought they were. How do you approach those type of conversations? Well, do doctors get like bedside manner training or something? I feel like when I'm having to give bad news, I'm a doctor telling somebody that they have cancer and it's horrible. I don't like having to give people bad news, especially if I'm the first person to tell them. I might say, have you talked to an attorney before? Has anyone told you anything about your case? But I research it before I say something and I'm trying to be careful with my words and I try to be as gentle as possible when I'm passing on that news. 
times, but generally I've gotten good at it, unfortunately, and people really respect the manner in which I had to tell them. And it's not just about them not being a citizen, potentially. It also could be about other news like that they're not eligible for something or they have a permanent bar or that there probably will never be a change because of the circumstances that they have. If you could give other lawyers advice about bedside manner, I love this, like lawyer bedside <laughs> manner, what's some advice that you would give? You should think about if they were your family, how would you want to be given bad news? And not in a rushed manner. You shouldn't avoid giving them that information. You should give them directly. You shouldn't have an assistant or someone else give it to them. And you should explain where you got that information, where you got that opinion. And that's the other thing I'll also say is like, this is my opinion from the law and policy that we have right now, but please feel free to get a second opinion. This is where I got this information from, you know, also I give them hope. I say, you know, there might be changes in the future. So please check in every year or two, pay attention to the news. If something seems on point with your fact pattern, that could change. I also give them like, if this were to happen, maybe you would be eligible. And, and so I try to get to the point, tell them the situation, tell them that there's maybe somebody else has a different interpretation, and then also tell them there might be change or hope in the future. I think that's the best we can do. That's great advice. Thank you. What was the next step after you graduated? Yeah, I went to law school and then I visited U of H my last year because my husband was in MBA program and his was two years and mine was three years. So I visited U of H my last year, even though I graduated from UNC. So it was 2008. What happened in 2008? We had a hurricane. We had the Great Recession. What else? Law firm I was working at merged with another firm I had worked at. So they were letting go people. <laughs> so that was the climate of November 2008. So I applied through a legal assistant posting as an attorney and it actually worked and I got my first lawyer job. But then through the economy and everything, I was laid off in 09 and then I got another job and then I was laid off again. So I literally had a grown up attorney job for one year and then I was laid off twice in 09 and then I started my firm in November 2009 and I've had my firm ever since. Yeah, I graduated law school in 2010. So oh, okay. I definitely remember that time <laughs> being like, oh, great. No yeah. jobs. <laughs> I'm really glad I did this. So <laughs> one year of experience, you're resourceful. This resourcefulness continues and you create your own firm. You later write a book about it, which I'd love to get into. Tell me, what did those first few years look like? And what also made you want to write this book? Well, and I think one year as an attorney, but if you go back and you think about it, I've actually interned every summer, every semester, and I worked at the Committee on Homeland Security and the International Student Office. So sometimes when I calculate how much immigration experience, it's beyond me being an attorney. And if I wouldn't have had that, I wouldn't have been as bold, I don't think to have started. Because when you start a firm, you're wearing so many hats. You're trying to do operations, HR, marketing, do the actual work, answer the phone, and then you have to know the law. And if I wouldn't have had all that other experience, I wouldn't have felt competent enough to do it. So the first couple of years was tough because the economy was still trying to figure out what was going on with that. And so I worked from my house. About six months into it, I hired a part-time assistant that had worked at a firm. She also had been laid off at a firm I was at, laid off from. 
And so we worked together. We had had a good rapport and I learned a lot from her. We worked together for two years and I really soaked up with a lot of experience and knowledge from her. She was basically a mentor to me. I was just working hard. I mean, if I didn't have the phone ringing, I was working on marketing to get the phone to ring. And then when the phone rang, I had to do the cases and And then I realized I had to keep making sure the phone would ring. I mean, I really was just talking to lots of people who had firms like, how do you do this? What's the best place to advertise? I spent so much time asking questions. And I also had read the Jay Foonberg book from the ABA about start and build. But I had found that some of the sections were a bit outdated. And so getting to why did I write my book? I wrote mine because I didn't want to have other people have to reinvent the wheel. You know, if they could just read a book and help it guide them so that they could be better lawyers and focus on the lawyering part instead of having to go do what I did, which was ask so many questions, read so many books, do so many different like courses and groups. That's what I was hoping that I would help others. And then maybe they could sort of leapfrog ahead by just reading the book and then they can guide them to opening other avenues of resources. But I know that not everybody reads and not everybody knows what they don't know and not everybody is open to learning from those in the past. And so you have to be ripe and open for it. You know, one of the best pieces of advice, and it seems like you naturally did this, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was, if you don't know how to do something and you're struggling to figure it out, ask three other people that have done it before you. You can always bet you're not the first person to deal with this problem. Yeah. (laughs) Don't try to kill yourself. Talk to other people. And it seems that when you were in high school and applying for these grants and all of these other things, but also now, you know, once you started your own firm, you naturally gravitated towards how do I learn from other people that came before me that have done this before me? And then how do I apply that to my world? And I think that's fantastic. It actually, that same law professor who helped me with my mom's state case, he gave a similar piece of advice. He basically said, go out and find the people who've done the things you want to do and ask them, how did you get here? What would you have done differently? And have those like mentors at different stages of your life. You know, maybe somebody who's done it five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years out and right. Learn from people, (laughs) you know, I guess that's why you have the podcast. (laughs) It's it's a great source. (laughs) Yeah. Where did you find these people? Like, how did you connect with the people that would later give you some of this advice? Well, when I was starting my firm, I just talked to all the people that were within reach, like had either graduated law school, one I attended or the one I graduated from and and asked them, like, tell me, how did you start your firm or what advice would you have? And I asked very pointed questions, lots of coffees, lots of lunches, lots of phone calls. Then I would try something and then I would experiment with it and then I would see how it would go. And now I see like there's a lot more Facebook forums and there's a lot more different community groups where people are sharing But I don't feel like that existed as much when I started my firm 13 years ago. So it it was a lot harder to do that. I agree. That did not exist when we graduated. (laughs) There was one really good mentor at the American Immigration Lawyers Association. His name's Reed Trouts. And he and I struck up a good relationship about 12 or 13 years ago. And so he's been a really strong mentor of mine. And he does law practice management consulting for AILA. So that's his role, amongst other things. And so he's been a constant for the majority of me having my firm as well. There's one other thing. I don't know if you know about me running my firm from Dubai. Did you know about that? I did not know this. Tell tell me about this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that's where Reed was really instrumental because basically I started my firm in November 09. Then I had my first baby in January 2011. 
Then my husband wanted to do something different with his career. So he quit his stable job and accepted a job in Dubai. And I knew that we might go on an international assignment. So that's why I kept everything on a shoestring and didn't sign any long-term contracts because I needed to be flexible and agile. So long story short, it was the Arab Spring. There was a lot going on in the middle of 2011. And my husband flew over there first. And then I landed in a sandstorm with my six-month-old. But I set up my firm so that my assistant was an executive suite in Houston. I basically was mommy by day and attorney by night. And by around 2 p.m. Dubai time to about maybe 10 p.m., I would work. I used Dropbox and Skype and Gmail. So that's when I had to also pivot my marketing to be all virtual remote representation. So I worked on a niche within immigration. I did a lot of what we call like waivers and consular processing that didn't require me to go to an interview, go to court or have to see the client necessarily. So that's where I had to pivot my marketing a bit. And Everything that was like a weakness, like I'm far away or I'm somewhere else, I tried to turn it into a strength. So like in Dubai at the time, Sunday was a weekday. So I would work on Sundays and that actually was good for people in the U.S. because then they didn't have to take off work or they could do Skype prep call with me or a consult. And so many people a decade ago were used to having to do it in person. So basically come COVID 2020, I had already done this. I had already done my 1.0. So this was like 2.0 for me. And reality, when I came back from Dubai almost 14 months later, my firm had grown. I had more staff, but I still kept that remote representation mentality so that I always was thinking if we can do the intake online, if we can try to do this over Skype or phone, like we can probably maximize our time and also benefit to the client who doesn't have to find us and come park and, you know, all that. And also in-person consults take a lot longer than Zoom or phone calls. But anyway, so I kept that mentality the whole time. You created a distributed workforce. You created a whole virtual and remote representation, all of that, but pre-COVID. Yeah. And can you just repeat the type of representation that you were doing? Well, in immigration, there's ways that you can do things where you don't necessarily have to physically go to like a government interview or court. So I did concert processing and waivers. That's like a niche within immigration. And so a lot of that, I never had to see the client. I didn't have to go to their interviews and I could do it all remotely. In fact, one of the jobs I had as an attorney, I learned a lot from there because she did all of the stuff remotely. And that's where I got a lot of my experience from about the remote representation. She never had the clients come in at all, actually. And so I was like, so this is possible. You could do everything over email, phone, FedEx, That's really incredible. Well, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but there are a few questions that I want to get to before we wrap up. Sure. What does leadership in law mean to you? You have to be forward thinking and you need to share what you've learned with others. That's what I did with my mentoring that I do, with the book that I wrote. And another thing is I started another business about law practice management, small business consulting, and I do monthly webinars on different law practice management topics. And reason why I started that was because I realized we were all craving, like we were saying, you know, those Facebook groups, and I'm on several of them. I even have one, Power Up Your Practice. But I think a lot of people are craving that community because they're trying to reinvent the wheel and they realize, wait, somebody else has already done this. Let's learn from them. So that's one of the places that I feel like I'm giving back. And I learned from them too. So, you know, in these discussions, so that's great. 
Yeah, absolutely. I remember all of the law line programs that you did. And then I remember always thinking to myself, like, she always represents this idea of share as much as you can with people. And that will always come back. Not that you're doing it for that purpose, but it'll always come back to you. And also one of the mantras we have at Lawline is teaching is the best form of learning. Once you create that space, we're always learning from the people we're teaching to. Student becomes the teacher, the teacher becomes the student. No, that's definitely true. And another thing that I did that takes a lot of leadership too, but I, I ran for a state rep a few years ago and I mean, that takes a lot of energy away from your family, your business, but I had a strong conviction about some things that were being done and I wanted to go out there and speak out against some things and you know, put myself out there for public service. And in the process, I learned a lot about public service, about myself, and I met a lot of other leaders. And even though I didn't make it in the primary, it was a three-way split, but I still learned so much and I'm still in that leadership space in my community. And I think that we should also consider that as well as another place to be leaders is in the public service space. Talk to me about that for a little bit. <laughs> What exactly, if you don't mind me asking, like, what were some of the issues that, I guess, catapulted you into that? So my state rep had helped sponsor a bill that was the Show Me Your Papers bill, SB4, I think back in 2017. And I had gone to the state senate in a hearing and I had testified against that bill. It still went through. So even that testifying experience, you know, driving all the way to Austin to do that and waiting the whole day to speak my three minutes. It had a big impact on me as well, but they still passed it. It's almost as if they didn't listen to the hundreds of people who went. And then the reason why that also impacted me is because a lot of my clients were living in fear here in Texas. We have such a huge immigrant community. And so I just felt like they needed somebody to help represent them. And that was just one of many things. So I put my hat in the ring back in 2019. And as soon as I turned in my book, I started running. And then I ran from 2019 to March 2020. I lost the primary March 3rd, 2020. And then I turned my whole firm remote like 10 days later. Yeah. But in the process, I just learned a lot about how the state politics really have a huge impact. I mean, a lot of people only know who their federal level representatives are, and they don't really think much about their city council persons or their state reps or state senators, but they really have a big impact as well on the way their lives are. I did a lot of walking, a lot of canvassing, a lot of talking to voters. And it's something I'll consider maybe in the future, but it really just gave me a whole nother perspective on life. And I mean, it can be consuming considering I also have a family and a firm and clients and everything. It can be hard to wear all of those hats, but I think that you don't always win your first time, but you learn so much and just how you would maybe do things differently if you ran again. But I think the other takeaway is even if you aren't the elected official, you can be helping others through canvassing, making connections with community leaders through donations for campaigns and just sort of letting people know what's going on and elevating that message. And that's the other thing I do is with media. I've been on the Media Advocacy Committee for a few years with AILA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association. And really, that's the other way I've been trying to get the word out about change is by my relationship with reporters and taking interviews and just letting people know what's going on in the immigration space. You know what I really love about your story is that you really are thoughtful and reflective about the steps and the things that you've learned. And then you distribute that information in a way that's also really understandable to other people. And I just think that's an incredible skill and an incredible contribution to society. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been a great reflective exercise. I really don't <laughs> sit down and contemplate everything I've done, but I guess I do have those reoccurring themes and it's basically just my ethos, my way of life, you know? Absolutely. So next question, if there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love this question because everybody has a very strong, like there's so many things or whatever it is. So but yes, go for it. One thing. Well, I don't think I have one thing, but what I will say is that just like we mentioned, more than a decade ago, I was already doing what we're sort of doing now. And so that's why I like to do a lot of talks about the future practice of law, because I feel like if you look around at other industries and you see how much the legal space has changed in just the last two years, I mean, I feel like we need to keep moving in that direction in terms of automating, leveraging technology. Like in immigration space, only after COVID, they use copies of signatures. Otherwise, we were chasing original signatures around. Do you know how antiquated that is and laborious and costly for our clients? Under immigration court, they're only started doing WebEx, which is like Zoom, if you will, hearings only in the last year. They didn't even do it during the majority of COVID, only in the last, like since summer 2021. So that's immigration space. But like basically just let's keep this trend going where we're leveraging technology. We're keeping up with the other industries. Don't regress and revert back to the old ways because what it ultimately comes down to is being able to be affordable and access to justice to our clients. And I really see that a lot of people are going to try to do more and more on their own and attorneys are going to be needed mostly for complex matters. And maybe that's going to be the case. I think we're going to continue to see the evolution of the legal practice. But I don't know. I guess that's my short answer. <laughs> yeah. So I think what I'm hearing you say is having the legal industry at large thinking more deeply and perhaps more consistently about the future practice of law and how we can continue to evolve and change to the benefit of our clients. Well said. And it's not just us, though. It's also on the, the government actors that we interact with. So if the federal government, like for immigration court, doesn't provide video courts, then we have to physically run down there or... They only allowed e-filing recently for some of the cases, unlike most other other areas of law have been e-filing for ages. So depending on whom we interact with in the government space, making sure that they also are thinking forward and all the actors, all the pieces of the puzzle. And I think a lot of the times we blamed our clients for why we didn't evolve technologically, but I think our clients are already there. For the most part, I think we should just quit making excuses. What is something people misunderstand about the work you do? <laughs> a lot of people think that the people who come across the border, like somehow get some magic ticket to getting status and then their whole life is like amazing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? No, they are in this mirage of court. When is it going to be? Is it going to be really quick? Is it going to be many years? And then they have to try to build up their case. And then they're trying to survive because they don't have any funds. They spent all their money probably paying somebody to leave and traverse several countries with their children to come here. And they didn't do it because they wanted an easy life. It's because they were just trying to avoid being you know, murdered, raped, or what have you in their home country. So it's not easy. When you come across the border and apply for asylum, it's not easy. I've got cases that have been pending a decade. I've got people who've applied affirmatively for seven years waiting. Now some of them want to file mandamus because they've been waiting so long. So 
Asylum is not easy. Those who apply from the border, not easy. Most chances, very high denial rates. So I don't know. Some people tell me, oh, if I just came across the border, I'd get an stat. I'm like, no, that's not how it works. No. Immigration is really complex and actually hasn't been new laws for like 25 plus years. It's all policy, interpretation, case law, executive power, executive documents. Really insightful answer. Thank you. Yeah. What is a piece of practical advice for our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law who are looking to follow your lead. I'll just echo my professor's advice because that's really worked for me. Maybe you don't know what you want to do when you grow up. Maybe you've gotten where you are so far, but you're still asking. And I think that's healthy. Don't think anything of it. But I think you always need to have goals. You always need to reassess them and you need to make new ones. Maybe you've already accomplished them and you haven't reset the next decade, 20 years or so. Self-reflect, read lots of variety of information and have a wide variety of mentors that can guide you. But most importantly, find people who are where you think you want to be and ask them how did they get there? What would they have done differently? Do they regret anything? And have several people out there that you can build that relationship with. It doesn't have to be a one and done coffee, but you really bond with them, stay in touch with them because I'm sure their answers could change over time. There's just the richness of having that long-term mentor-mentee relationship is invaluable. And I think that there's not enough focus on that in society today, but we should continue those relationships so that we can, we don't have to reinvent the wheel and we might be able to use a lot of their wisdom to save us lots of time and just help guide us on the right path. Beautifully put. What do you do for self-care? Well, I'm doing a lot of reading right now about energy and chakras. I got into that the last few weeks, especially because I do a lot of trauma work with asylum. So I'm also considering how to best protect myself and my staff while we're doing a lot of asylum cases. But mostly I get reflexology or massage. I do Pilates and I try to read and go on national park vacations with my family and try not to work too much on the weekends or evenings. Love that you're thinking deeply about the trauma that you and your firm potentially go through based on the cases that you're working on. I think that's a beautiful and important thing to be doing for your firm. Yeah, we're already experiencing that because we do a lot of asylum work and there's that vicarious trauma and PTSD and we don't want to have the burnout. And I wrote a lot about that in my self-care chapter in my book. But usually if you do too much of this Victim Violence Against Women Act, U visa, which is victim visa or asylum, if you don't know how to handle it, you can internalize it, especially if you're an empath. And so that's why it's important to be aware of the energy and, you know, boundaries. Yes. Ruby, thank you so much for being here today. It has been wonderful to talk to you. I've really learned so much about your journey and thank you for being so forthcoming and reflective. It's been really interesting to go on this journey with you. If someone wanted to connect with you, what is the best way they can do so? They can find me on LinkedIn and they can email me ruby at rubypowerslaw.com. And then the law firm is Powers Law Group at rubypowers.com. So yeah, I mean, reach out and stay connected, see how if I could be a part of their journey and 
be a resource for them. But I mean, I really enjoyed our discussion today. This has been grand, sort of took me out of my business day and (laughs) just put me back on a little bit of history. But, you know, it's all a part of our future as well. So I'm really glad you asked these questions and have this venue to share this insight with a lot of other attorneys as well. Oh, Ruby, you are so kind. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.